Hello and welcome. My name is Shanna Whitaker with Saltbox Church, and we are so excited you found us and are carving out some time for King Jesus. So I invite you to put your phones down, your to-do list away, and open your hearts to receive the Word of God. Thank you, guys. Good morning. Thank the Lord for our new space. Come on. We've had a team here working hard, so I want to say thank you to Pastor Daniel and the whole team that's been here Thursday, Friday, Saturday, um, setting up. I mean, we are, this is just a, a sweet spot. I was laughing coming in this morning, reminiscing on, um, this is actually our 10th move as Saltbox. I'd said we would never move, right? And God willing, this will be our last move until we have our own space. But I was laughing because my favorite service to date maybe not favorite, but in a roundabout, the oddest service, the most unusual favorite service was we were actually in the middle of the COVID pandemic and we were meeting at our landscaping shop in Leland and it was pouring down rain about twice or three times as hard as it is today. And guess how many people came? One family. And their kids sat on our green John Deere tractor while we all talked and shared. It was great. It was just one of those moments that it will forever be marked uh, in my mind. But anyway, here we are. We're so grateful to the First Baptist Church. Um, And we're actually even talking about having a a joint service with them on Pentecost Sunday. So um, super just exciting. Love seeing the church um, become uh, the larger church and members of the larger body of Christ. So, okay, um, I, we are in Advent. Um, Spencer, if you'll put up my verses, that would be great. Um, so we are in Advent, and we've been taking a look at Advent specifically through the lens of Nazareth. Um, if you've never been here this morning, uh, we are a, we're like a Bible church. We're a Jesus church. We're a Holy Spirit church. So open your, open your Bible. If you're on your phone and you want to scroll, scroll away. If you don't have a Bible, we give out NIV study Bibles right out in the hallway, and we also give one-year Bibles um, out there as well. So we have somebody that, that underwrites all that, so grab a Bible. Um, but we are going to take a look at Jesus um, as a carpenter, specifically as it relates to Nazareth, and then I'm going to see if we can get our hands around uh, this story that he tells, the house on the rock. You may or may not know that. Um, And we're going to tie it in, if we can, to the Old Testament and then bring it all the way back around to Christmas and then to how that impacts and intersects your heart and mind in the here and now. Sound good? You know me. I'm always going to dive in and we're always going to get our arms around something big. So let's go. Um, Okay, so Matthew 13, uh, 55. Uh, Here is, I'm actually going to start at verse 53, and we're merely going to set the table with this. Um, But Matthew 13, verse 53 says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. 54, coming to his hometown. Now, what is his hometown? Nazareth, okay, but where was he born? Bethlehem, a little shift there, but he grew up in Nazareth, spent most of his life in Nazareth. So coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. Now, who else's synagogue would that have been? He grew up in this city. It's his synagogue. This is where he grew up. He would have been very familiar with this place, these people. He would have been here 28 years at least, um, spent most of his adult life here. So he's saying, or Luke, uh, Matthew rather, says here, um, they came to their synagogue, but it's also his synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked. Verse 55, here it is. Isn't this the carpenter's son? If you've got a Bible and you're circling, circle carpenter. That's the word we're going to work off of today. And that word in Greek is actually tekton. You can see it up on the screen. Isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So we get immediately a sense of what's happening um, in or what happened in the life of Jesus and even a sense of his growing up years. How many brothers and sisters does he have? Four. He's, his dad was a um, Carpenter. All right, now, cross-reference. Where am I going? Mark 6.3. Let's do the same thing in Mark 6.3. If you're flipping in your Bible, you're going to the right. A couple of books. Actually, one book. Mark 6.3. But let's start in verse uh, 1. Mark 6.1. Jesus left there, and he went to his hometown. Again, what's his hometown? Nazareth. Where was he born? Bethlehem, okay, accompanied by his disciples. That doesn't just mean the 12 apostles, but that means men and women, the larger group, probably some 70 or even more that rolled with him from town to town. Uh, Verse two, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in their synagogue, also his synagogue, and many who heard were amazed. 
Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, and what are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter, tecton? Say tecton. tecton. <clears throat> okay, isn't this the carpenter? So Jesus' dad was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. Okay, tecton. So here's what I want to open for you um, and it, it goes on there, but it says, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Offended at Jesus, imagine. <clears throat> okay, so tecton, let's just open this up for just a minute, and then I'm gonna invite you into what Jesus, a, a day in the life of Jesus may have looked like. This is, um, will be extra biblical. We don't know a lot of Jesus's childhood, but tecton means carpenter, or it means general builder. Has anybody been to Israel? We got a handful. Okay, half a dozen or better. There's, there's these massive stands of like pine tree forest in Israel, right? No? Okay. It's arid. It's desert. They don't have pine trees. So oftentimes, if you've been there, what they actually build with is a substance called rock or stone. Now, they would still use wood to make doors and windows and fashion little things, but the houses are all built of rock. So in our sort of Western context, when we think uh, general builder or carpenter, we think wood. We fashion things out of wood. We build with wood. We build our houses with wood. But in a Middle Eastern context, in a, in a Palestinian context, when you say um, general builder um, or, or, or general contractor, you're going to build primarily with stone and then secondarily with wood. Okay. So if we open that a step further, um, Nazareth was this small little know-nothing, super disrespected and disliked village. And about three and a half miles from there is a beautiful blossoming city called Sephoris. And I, most commentators almost across the board agree that likely Jesus at some point um, under the tutelage of his, his father Joseph would have walked three and a half miles um, to Sephoris and he would have actually worked there as a carpenter, builder, mason, um, building houses. Okay, so here's what I want to open up for you this morning, and I want you to, um, you're going to have to imagine with me a little bit, because I want to take you to Nazareth a second, if I can. So I want you to imagine that it's about 14 uh, CE, so Jesus was probably born around four. He's now, let's say he's about a 10-year-old young boy, and I want you to imagine that this is a cold desert night, so if you walked out, the stars are everywhere. There's no conflicting light except some campfires. You can see all the stars above you, super cold though at night, and Joseph gets up. His dad gets up probably at 4 or 5 a.m. This is conjecture because we know almost nothing about Jesus um, and his child childhood, but Joseph would have likely risen early, and he would have gone over to the boy Jesus and said, get up, get up. And Jesus would have opened his eyes, perhaps, and he would have sat up and greeted his father, and then greeted his heavenly father in prayer, in their morning prayer. And then he probably would have gotten up, and he would have taken the sheep that were likely in the, the main living room of the house, both to keep the house warmer and to protect the sheep from robbers and other things. And he would have let those sheep out into the family courtyard doing his morning chores. And he probably would have gone outside, and he actually would have milked the sheep. And he may have taken that milk and set it aside for his mom. Mary and his younger siblings so that when they got up, they would have breakfast. And then he and Joseph would have gathered their things, perhaps eating a breakfast of salted fish or some lamb uh, or a dried fruit, a date or a fig, and they would have grabbed a little thing of water. And he and his father, Joseph, his earthly father, Joseph, probably would have walked some days hand in hand, some days just side by side, the three and a half miles to this village or this growing city, rather, of Sephoris. And I want you to imagine with me this morning, because this is the king of kings, this is the Lord of lords, but he is still a 10-year-old boy. He is fully God, but he is also fully human. That's something that is very hard for us to get our heads around. So there are these transcendent moments, and I have no idea, it's extra biblical, I can't prove it, what this may have been like, but I can just imagine that as he and Joseph are walking along, they are having and sharing deep conversation, and we don't know the ultimate and, and how Joseph lived his life, but we know that Joseph was no longer alive when Jesus started his ministry. 
So Joseph had an accident. He died of a disease. We have no idea. But I imagine that on this particular day, Jesus and Joseph were holding hands, perhaps at some point, perhaps walking side by side, sharing and talking and laughing. And I can only imagine that as they exited the gates of Nazareth, that if Jesus looked to the left and to the right, he would have seen beggars. He would have seen maybe someone who was blind. And I can just imagine that Yahweh God and his little brain synapses and all that's happening in his little heart would have been pressing upon him and shaping him that one day, Jesus, you will heal the man who is blind. And perhaps as he walked on, they journeyed, and there were maybe Roman garrisons that marched by. And here we have the absolute manifest presence of God Almighty, creator, Lord of the universe. And yet people who are walking by have no idea, and they look at him and see this little silly 10-year-old boy. And perhaps as they get to Sephoris, and this is a much more impressive city, it ultimately was the capital of Galilee for a few years, it was a capital city in the making, he may have walked in and there may have been people like prostitutes sitting at the gates, and he may have walked inside and seen someone um, who who had a a crippling disease, and it may have been that in those moments that uh, God Almighty, Yahweh, began to work in his little heart and his little mind and say, you will shape, you will heal, you will resurrect, you will raise up. And as he's talking to Joseph, I can just imagine him thinking and, and, and this leap between being this 10-year-old human boy and yet being God Almighty creator. Can you imagine? And I imagine that as he journeyed on, he uh, could have seen people who had leprosy. And as he and Joseph went, I imagine them getting to the job site on that morning and putting down their water. And uh, most of the time in the Middle East at this point, they're going to eat breakfast and dinner, probably not even eat lunch. And so they put their water down. They're probably living paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth. Um, and they would put it down. And then they picked up their tools and they started going to work. And I imagine that on this particular day, that they began to dig, and so they took shovels, and they didn't have excavators and um, tractors and gas-powered things, right? So they began to dig, and their job on this particular day may have been to lay a foundation for a house. And so Joseph instructs Jesus to dig. No, 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 you dig like this, Jesus. Well, why do we have to dig, Dad, Father? Because you have to dig. If we build the house on the sand, if we build it on the clay, then uh, when the rains come, because it's dry season now and there would have been a wet season, what will happen to the foundation? Washed away. And so he begins to dig. And okay, Dad, he wouldn't have called him Dad, but I'm going to use our Western vernacular. Dad, I've dug down a foot. Can Can we start? Can we lay the foundation? No, 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 no. Keep digging. Keep digging. We must hit the stone. We must hit the bedrock. And Jesus keeps digging, and the sun's now coming up, and it's still cold, and they're sweating, and perhaps they stop for a water break. Keep digging. Keep digging. And maybe they get two or three feet down, and then boom, we hit bedrock. Dad, Dad, I hit the rock. I hit the rock. Jesus, that's great. Now let's lay the foundation stone. And I can imagine he and Jesus taking that foundation stone in their hands and then kneeling next to that hole and laying the chief cornerstone, the foundation stone, into that hole. And I can also imagine simultaneously that Yahweh, God Almighty, is already pressing on this boy Jesus, who is also the God-man. How can you figure that out? That you are the chief cornerstone. You will be the stone with which once it's set on the foundation, that everything will be pulled off of, every measurement, every line, every And I can just imagine his little shaking hands as he tries to lower the stone and Joseph with him and they lower it into this hole and they set the foundation stone that will become the chief cornerstone on which the entire house will be built. Now, I can just also imagine because Yahweh, God, exists outside of time, which is so hard for us to get our minds around, but just imagine for a second that he is also pressing upon this boy Jesus as he drops this foundation stone into the ground that one day, Jesus, this is God Almighty now, Yahweh speaking perhaps to him saying, one day you will stand and you will preach the greatest sermon of all time called the Sermon on the Mount or what Luke called the Sermon on the Plain. And when you end that sermon, you are going to actually end with the builder that built his house on the rock and the builder that built his house on the sand 
stand and the chief cornerstone. And I can just imagine these moments where this little boy Jesus is flashes forward to what will be and then what is. And perhaps even a moment where this little boy Jesus flashes back to what it was like sitting in heaven as king, as God, as ruler, when they decided they being God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that Jesus will make his entrance as a baby and then as a young boy in this little village of Nazareth and he will grow up in poverty and he will grow up uh, at times hungry and he will ultimately lose his father and he will be trained in this little synagogue in Nazareth and he will become the chief cornerstone from which all things will be measured and set and the entire church, the international church, church all, all around, the larger body of Christ will be built. Go with me to Matthew 7. This is the climax uh, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. It is... It is undoubtedly uncontested by anyone anywhere. The greatest sermon that has ever been preached, the greatest sermon that will ever be preached, it is the sermon by which all sermons are measured. It is the thing. It became the benchmark. It connected the Old Testament and the New Testament. It connected the ancient church with the modern church. It connected God Almighty that created at the very beginning of time with God Almighty, which will stand at the very end of time. It created, a, a, the, it laid the table for the platform that would understand the entire human journey um, it set the stage for Rome. It set the stage for the Pharisees. It set the stage for the young disciples. It set the stage for the fledgling church. It is the sermon. Okay, so here is how it comes to an end. Matthew 7, verse 24. This is the cataclysmic ending to the finest sermon ever preached. Here we go. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and they beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the Sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew against it and against the house, and it fell with a great crash. <clears throat> Verse 28, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The entire Sermon on the Mount ends with this little parable. And, and what's amazing is in most Western churches, this, I don't mean any disrespect here, but in most Western churches, we've actually taken this little passage and the corresponding passage in Luke 6, and we've reduced it to like a, um, almost a kid's uh, storybook. So you can get so many kid's storybooks on the house on the rock and the house on the Sand. And it's not inherently wrong, but I think in doing so, what we begin to miss is the absolute, absolute transcendent revelation um, that exists in these few words. So I want us to look deeper um, into this because I would say to you this morning that dynamite is a very small thing, and yet it causes a very big... we got the same thing happening right here. Let me, um, I want to take us to Luke 6 next because I think it, we can almost um, unpack Luke 6. It's the same story, uh, a little bit easier, and then we're going to look at where the story came from in the Old Testament. You may not even know that. Um, but, but as I do that, I want to explain something to you. If you sat with me before and heard me talk about parables, I love parables, and I love that Jesus told parables because I would view a parable like a huge mirror. Um, like a big, I just picture it like a big uh, oval mirror that you would look into. And you look into a mirror to do what? See yourself. Oh, I look good. Or I look funny. Or I've got lettuce in my teeth. Or I've, you know, whatever it is. My hair looks bad. Or, you know, you fill in the blank. My hair fell out. You know, whatever. It's, oh. So you, you, you take a, a mirror. And I love the way Jesus uses uh, parables because he uses it almost like he's holding a mirror. So I want you to imagine I'm holding a mirror and I'm holding it out so that you can see into it. Now, if I'm holding this right here in front of Brad, Brad, what do you see in the mirror? <laughs> 
yourself. Okay, but Jesus almost always starts with the mirror angled up like this, okay? And so if Brad's sitting here and he's looking into the mirror and the mirror is angled like this, what does Brad see? Heaven. He sees God. So the first thing Jesus starts with, usually in most of his parables, is this revelation to the hearers of an image or a view of God, the kingdom of heaven, the larger thing that is going on here. And then at some point in the parable, he makes this pivot with the mirror, and suddenly he shifts it, and after he has given revelation of the larger kingdom of God, he's going to shift and go, boom. Now look at yourself in the context of this revelation of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's this very humbling thing, and this is why the Pharisees hated him, because he taught with such power and such simplicity. And he will always take this mirror, and he will always shift it back as you hear the word, as you understand the word, as you understand Yahweh God, as you understand the kingdom of heaven, and then he'll shift it and go, Phew. So now you have to look at who? Yourself. And we'll do that today. Welcome to the journey. <clears throat> okay, so uh, in um, a lot of ways, if you're like a math brain or a business person, I would almost see this like an ancient rabbinic gap analysis. In other words, it's like God's here and you're here and here's the difference and what are you going to do? I'm going to build my house on the rock. Okay, let's keep going. You're getting there. Okay, <clears throat> So what is, um, before we go to Luke uh, 6, what is troubling here about this message and this whole sermon is, do you notice there's no ministry time? So Jesus just ended this sermon. He just got to the end. And what happened? Okay, I'm done. Bye. No ministry time. There's no prayer time. Does he give an altar call? Doesn't give an altar call. Does he give anybody an opportunity to surrender their life to him? Mm, not in terms of like coming forward or raising their hand. Is there a special song afterwards that makes everybody feel good? No. But what he leaves everyone with is this cataclysmic clash of the larger kingdom of God with the human heart and experience. And then he like serves up this decision now is yours. Are you going to take up your cross and follow me? He just drops it. I love this about Jesus. Okay. Let's go to Luke 6. Luke 6. This is Luke's version um, of math, the story we just read in Matthew. And I love Dr. Luke because he's a Gentile, so he writes things in probably ways that we as Gentiles can understand more easily. So Luke 6, I'm going to start in verse 46. Okay. <clears throat> Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As far as for those who come to me and hear my words and put them into practice, I will show you what they are like. So you got this hearing and doing. So the, you have first, he's going to talk about the people who um, hear his words and put them into practice. Verse 48. The ones who hear and do are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Okay. When a flood came, the torrent struck and the house, but could not shake it. Oh, excuse me. A torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. In other words, it was on the rock. Okay. Verse 49. But those who hear my words and do not put them into practice are like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. Okay, the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. <clears throat> okay, let's open this up, and then we're going to take a larger look at the Old Testament. I'm going to see if I can open a few things for you, and uh, we'll just see what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts as we work through this. Um, so immediately, we sort of know, okay, you can either build your house on your own good works, um, kind of like a religious Pharisee, um, or you're going to build your house on the rock of King Jesus, on, on his transforming internal heart work. Okay, so that's kind of first glance. Now, if we dig a little deeper, what becomes pretty clear is Jesus is not talking about people who are Christian and non-Christian. This is really important. So at first glance, you could go, well, those who build their house on the rock are the Believers and the Christians and those who build their house on the sand are the, but that's not what's happening here. 
Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews in both cases, and what he is actually beginning to contrast is Christians, and he's saying, and now at this point, they, they wouldn't have understand the word Christian. It didn't happen until after his death, and then his resurrection, and his ascension, and then the church in Acts launched. That's when Christian first started, that term. But the idea of taking up your cross and following after Christ, which is the way he would have put it, surrendering your life to the lordship of Christ, he is actually cutting a defining line between two types of Christians. Those of us who build our house on the rock and those of us who build our house on the sand. Now, here, I want you to, um, you're both going to, I want you to breathe deep. But many of us have parts of our houses that are built on the sand and we don't even know it. That's been true in my life again and again and again. And God often gifts us with difficulties, trials, sufferings, even successes, because it will expose and sift and reveal where your heart is built on the sand and where it is actually built on the rock. Okay, let's keep going. One of the troubling things here um, as we work our way down is that uh, both houses look the same. Both houses seem the same. Both houses, for all we can tell, are the same until what? The storm. And the storm reveals whether the foundation is on the sand or on the bedrock. Okay, let's keep going. Now, I'm going to shift into two things because I want you to understand um, the eternal nature of God and the Genesis to Revelation nature of God. This is my favorite part of Jesus um, is that he's always bringing the old and the new together in him. Like, it's, it's amazing. So the, the, we're, we're headed towards um, Isaiah 28, if you want to turn there. Um, but what Jesus does here so brilliantly is if you have no knowledge of the Old Testament, if you have no knowledge of what he is about to tell us, anyone who understands a house built on the sand in a storm is going to fall. Any house built on the rock in a storm is going to stand strong. So anyone can understand the story at face value. That's why we can make it into a little kid's book and our kid, our three-year-old and five-year-old, six-year-old kids at bedtime can understand it. And it's not wrong to understand it that way. You follow me? But if we dig a little bit deeper, Jesus is actually retelling. I mean, this is so brilliant of Jesus. He is retelling, he is recasting a story that Isaiah first told and then Ezekiel told next. So two Old Testament prophets tell this same story. And so for anyone who is sitting in the crowd, um, the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, the Pharisees, perhaps the zealots, the Essenes, anyone of the day who was sitting in that uh, crowd when Jesus delivered the sermon, Sermon on the Mount, they are able to understand at an entirely different level what Jesus is talking about here when he tells the story of the house on the rock and on the sand. Are you ready? Let's go deeper. You're probably already there. Isaiah 28. I'm behind you. Okay, we're going to start in verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. Okay who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by. Now, overwhelming scourge, um, especially if we use the study of Dr. Kenneth Bailey, I like him, love him in fact, Um, but if we use uh, his um, sort of uh, framework that he builds, that overwhelming scourge is actually uh, synonymous with the storm that comes against the house in Jesus' story, in Jesus' version, okay? So keep going. Um, For we have made a lie our refuge, the house on the sand. If you build your house on the sand, guess what? A lie is your refuge. You might not know it. I've lived a lot of my life under deception. I'll tell you about that maybe if we have time. And falsehood is your hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion. A tested stone. Zion is also synonymous with um, the Temple Mount. It's uh, synonymous with um, Jerusalem. So see, I lay a stone in Zion. Now, go back to the boy Jesus digging in Sephora until he hits bedrock and then laying the 
foundation stone, the chief cornerstone, which is Acts 4, Mark 12, Matthew 21, Luke. I mean, it's, it is all over the place. But see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. So Jesus is recasting and retelling a parable that Isaiah actually, or, uh, yeah, Isaiah actually told to the people of the day. Some of them no doubt got it, the more educated ones among them. Some of them didn't get it, but they both understood that you can either build your house on the sand or you can build your house on the rock. One's going to fall, one's going to stand when the storm or the tempest or the scourge uh, hits it. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 17, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. What happens in Jesus' version? Storm comes, flood rises, wind hit. Okay. Verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand when the overwhelming scourge sweeps by and you will be beaten down by it. Okay. Two things you need to know that are so powerful. I'm going to do my best to make it like simple and digestible here. According to Ken Bailey, Dr. Kenneth Bailey, um, he actually quotes the Mishnah, which we can look up. I looked it up, and he accurately quotes it. But here's what the, uh, the Mishnah is a foundational rabbinic text in Orthodox Judaism. Now, hang with me. If you're sitting here and you're, your first time, you're like, where is this dude going? Hang with me. It's, it is really good. Okay, here we go. Here's what the Mishnah says. After the Ark of the Covenant was taken away. So the Ark of the Covenant is removed from the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. We don't know exactly when, where, or how. Probably during the Babylonian rule. But it says, after the Ark of the Covenant was taken away, a stone remained there. So in the Holy of Holies. From the time of the early prophets. Who are the early prophets? Isaiah and Ezekiel. Okay. It was called... Um, Shetia, Shetia, S-H-E-T-E-Y-A-H, Shetia. You got to Google it. I'm telling you, Google Shetia, S-H-E-T-E-Y-A-H, Shetia in Hebrew, and it will take you to the foundation stone on Wikipedia. Now, I got a dear friend Nathan up here, and Nathan's always telling me you got to check out ChatGPT. So, I threw in this foundation stone, Shetia in Hebrew, and ChatGPT couldn't even keep up with me. They could, it, it could not get its full head around this, but hang with me because this is so powerful. So Shetia, I'm, I'm quoting the Mishnah here. So after the Ark of the Covenant was taken away, a stone remained there from the time of the early prophets. The stone is called the Shetia or the foundation stone, okay? So when Isaiah... 28 says here, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. This is how it's being now later written about. Um, it was, okay, so this stone, I'm still reading from the Mishnah, it was higher than the ground by three finger breadths. So not very much higher, but a few inches from the ground in the Holy of Holies. Okay, and on this, um, he, the high priest, would go in and he would set the fire pan. Okay, now hang with me. Um, what this text is basically saying is that the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies in the middle of this like 12-hour liturgy cycle on this solemn day. He would enter the Holy of Holies carrying a large pan of burning charcoal covered with incense. And in the center of Holy Holies is a stone called the foundation stone. And on that foundation stone, he would actually lay this pan of burning charcoal covered with incense. And this fire pan um, was placed placed on this stone, which was called the foundation, okay? Now, the average Jew who was sitting with Jesus when he delivers this story about the house on the rock and the house on the sand knew with 100% certainty, like not even just like maybe, but with 100% certainty, the average Jew sitting, listening to Jesus, knows that in the Holy of Holies, because they would have gone there at some point in their journey, knows that in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant is no longer there, but what is there is a stone called the foundation stone. So when Jesus, back to our Luke Six passage sits there and says, let me see if I can find it. 
hear my words and put them into practice. I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. So what Jesus is immediately connecting is this is this foundation stone that is in the Holy of Holies, which we are all made, we are atoned. Every Jew would have understood it fully. Um, this uh, stone called the foundation stone, now is, Jesus is actually saying, who is the foundation stone? Me. He's saying, I am the foundation stone. So some people actually say, well, Jesus never says he's God in the Bible. Oh, he says it again and again and again and again. You just don't understand. You just don't understand. So he is saying with unequivocal certainty, the person who dug down and laid the foundation on the rock. He is saying, listen to these words of mine and don't merely be listeners, but actually be doers. And I am Jesus. I am the one who is taking the place of the foundation stone. I am becoming the atoning lamb of God. There is no temple anymore. You got the first temple, you got the second temple. And Jesus is saying, I am the third temple. And not only am I the third temple, but you who hear my words and put them into practice are also the third temple. You, this place, me, my life, this is the foundation stone. So people would have been sitting on the mountain that day, probably a crowd of 10 or 15,000 as he preached his Sermon on the Mount, and they would have been listening, saying, we're to be listeners and doers, and we're to put our life on the foundation stone, the foundation stone that Isaiah talked about in Mount Zion, the foundation stone that's in the Holy of Holies right now. And we are called he is. This is God incarnate. This is the great I am. This is Emmanuel. This is Christ with us. He is the one and he is calling us now to put all of our faith, all of our actions, all of our hearing into him. He is the new temple. We're not just waiting for him to overthrow Rome or him to set up the new Davidic kingdom. No, 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 no. He is God. And I'm sure some of them sat there and went, huh? Huh? But then there's a whole host of other people who went, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus is saying, I am the Shatiya. And chat GPT can't even get that. I am the foundation stone. I am God. Now, flip one more time. Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, verse 29. If you're scrolling, you have a great advantage here. If you're flipping, use your concordance. <laughs> verse 29, Isaiah 33, verse 29. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have made a land a desolate waste because of the detestable things they have done. Okay. Get ready for it. Verse 30. Isaiah, Ezekiel 33, verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. So anyone there who understood Ezekiel, anyone there who understood Isaiah would have immediately, and all of the religious people and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots and the Sadducees, all the religious folk back then would have had everything fully memorized. So when the moment Jesus said, um, put, hear my words and put them into practice, their minds are immediately clicking back to Ezekiel and to Isaiah but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and surely it will, then you will know that a prophet foretelling the prophet, King Jesus, Okay, couple things here, and then I'm going to shift and make some applications. Kenneth Bailey would say uh, to us about both of these texts, Isaiah and Ezekiel, that these are um, prophetic rhetorical templates that are like 
sophisticated and near perfect. That's what he'd say if we were sitting in a seminary class. And he would say the, the, um, the inverted parallelism and the step parallelism are woven together with perfect skill. I'm not going to take the time to unpack that for you. But anyone who heard the words of Jesus, who understood Isaiah and Ezekiel, would have known beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was recasting and retelling the very same story. first temple was Solomon's temple. The second temple was Herod's temple. And Jesus is saying, I am the Shatiyah. I am the foundation stone. I am God. I am the thing on which you must build your life. And if you build your life on anything else, when the storms come and they will come, your whole house is going to be wrecked and washed away. Let me tell you something about my own life for just a second. And then I'm shifting, share some application points. There have been three or four places in my life where I recognized I have built my life on the sand. I was a young man uh, in a really strong evangelical great group at UNCW and a um, very unusual crew of people came through. They were on staff um, and they ended up leading a cult. And I spent seven years um, in a cult, a totally estranged from family and friends and clinically diagnosed in a court of law. And I built my life on the sand. When the Lord rescued me and delivered me, called me out of this dark place and brought me back, there was no goodness in me. There was nothing in me that I could do to earn my salvation. It suddenly became, it's got to be grace alone. It's got to be faith alone. It's got to be Jesus alone because there's nothing else I have. I am fully bankrupt and it was the greatest gift God has ever given me. And I wouldn't actually say, if, if I introduce you to the 18-year-old kid or the 19-year-old kid at UNCW, I had my grace theology right, I had my faith theology right, I could have talked to you about it, and it would have all made sense. But experientially, my heart and my house was built on the sand. The other place that I'm recognizing it is right now in the here and now. As we plant a church, as we grow a church, as we build, as things even look better, there is a temptation, a subtle temptation to shift allegiance and to shift focus and to begin to serve the things or the stuff instead of serving the king. We've got to be very, very, very careful. And this is true for every one of us Americans. We can serve the house and the check and the boat and the yard and the thing and the purse and the shoes. and the, you, I mean, you fill in the blank, the marriage and the look good on Instagram and the likes on Facebook. And you can serve all of the things. And suddenly, if you're not careful, you have built your entire house on the sand. And when the tempest comes, and it will, it will not stand. Let's make some applications. If you have eyes to see it, the Holy Spirit of God will gift you with difficulties, challenges, sufferings, and even successes that will reveal to you where your life is built on the sand. If you welcome them, if you go, Lord, sift me, Father, show me, because the scourge will come. Second point, hearing and doing is compared to the energy of little Jesus digging, right? So, so being hearers and being doers is compared to the energy of digging through hard clay to find the bedrock. It is much easier not to dig. It is much easier not to do the heart work. It is much easier just to build the house on the sand and hope it all works well. But the promise is that in time, something will come. And when it comes, if your heart is not founded on the bedrock of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Shatiyah, the foundation stone, the chief cornerstone, it will fall. You're either going to build on the sand of your own good works or you're going to build on the person of Jesus. In this short parable, Jesus is contrasting Christians and other Christians. The troubling thing is they look the same, the houses look the same, everything looks the same until the storm comes. Hear the storm on the roof? Faith in Jesus, this is painful to hear, but you need to hear it. Faith in Jesus does not provide magical protection from the storms of life. He doesn't. He is actually promising you in both of these parables, greatest sermon ever preached, the scourge is going to come, the tempest is going to come, the storm is going to come. If you're not in a storm right now, praise Jesus, bless Jesus, you're going to be at some point. If you're in a storm right now, bless Jesus, it's going to come to an end at some point. Hang on. 
But if you allow him to sift down into your heart to find out, is my house, is my life, is my marriage, is my family, are my finances, are my kids, is everything built on the bedrock of the person of Jesus, the shatia, the foundation, the first temple, Solomon's temple, passed away. Second temple, passed away. Jesus is the third and final temple, and it's not a building built with human hands. It's an unseen kingdom that existed then, it existed now, and when King Jesus comes back and resurrects us in this earth and rules and reigns, setting up a new heaven and a new earth, a new Eden, a new Jerusalem, he will establish what is already established, which is himself as the third temple, and you and I as co-sharers in it. If we can begin to access that So is your house built on the rock or the sand? That's all I have to say. <laughs> Band, will you? <laughs> well, look, Rick's right there. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for this Advent season. And Father, I am convinced that this is the message of Christmas. This is the message of hope. This is the message of your person, your presence, Yahweh, God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. As we're praying, prayer team, would you guys get up and just make yourself available kind of around the sides here. We're gonna close in a song and I wanna invite you to do a couple of things. If you wanna make like Jesus did in his sermon, greatest sermon ever preached, you can sit in your chair and let the Holy Spirit sift your heart because he's gonna sift you whether you're sitting there or whether you come up here, I assure you. But if you wanna come up and grab special prayer, there's some people around our circle here. You can come up and pray with somebody. These aren't superstars, they're just like me. They're broken, but Jesus has them on a journey. And if you're here in this room and you've never surrendered your life to him, maybe you've never even heard the gospel like this, you go, man, I wanna know him. Well, he wants to know you. Don't walk out of here without giving your life to him. I'm gonna be right up here. There's a couple of us, I'd love to pray with you. But let's stand together. We're gonna to close in a worship song. Come for special prayer if you'd like. Come to give your heart to Jesus if you'd like. If you wanna just kneel where you're standing or sitting, or if you wanna come up here and kneel, this is a special time between you and the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Emmanuel, the Creator, the Shatia, the foundation stone. Let him dig deep in your heart and find those places that aren't built on him and him alone.
Father, as you send us out today, may every one of us in here know your sweet gaze. May we sense your tender touch. May we rest in the certainty that you are the Shatia, the foundation stone, the one who goes before and the one who comes behind. Father, for the ones who are in a scourge or a tempest or a trial or a pain today, would you meet them? Would you fill them? Father, for those who are on a mountaintop full of joy and triumph, I pray that you would meet them too. Father, would you build us as a small part of the larger body of Christ that exists on the earth today? And Father, this season, this Christmas, this Emmanuel, God with us, may we know you, may we abide in you, may we hear your voice, may we follow you. And would you fill us with your person and your presence more fully? mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today and being part of the Saltbox online community. If we can pray for you in any way, please leave us a comment below or connect with us through saltboxchurch.com. Remember, just Jesus, nothing more, nothing less.